0: Genesis chapter 22, Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, or you can follow along in the YouVersion app. And uh, as you know, over the last several weeks, we've been going through uh, the book of Genesis uh, in our series, Stories from the Beginning, and... uh, This is actually going to be our last Sunday in Genesis for a little while. Uh, Starting next week, we are going to start moving towards Easter, and uh, we have an Easter series that we're going to go through, but we will be back uh, in Genesis uh, after Easter. So we're not done with the the book yet, but we uh, will be out of it for a few weeks. But also during this time, I want to play catch up a little bit to where we are this morning in Genesis chapter 22. And over the last few weeks, we've been talking a lot about Abram or who would become Abraham. And uh, as we know, there's this promise, right, that, that God has made to Abraham this covenant that he has made with Abraham. I am going to bless your you're going to be blessed, you're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars, you're going to take the land of your enemies. And yet, over time, it seems like this just isn't going to happen. I mean, Abraham's getting older, Sarah's getting older, and he's like, what's happening? None of this has come to fruition yet, what is going on? But yet, God reminds him, no, this is a promise I've made, and this is going to happen. And so, you know, things take place, Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, we see another uh, kind of Egypt moment with Abraham and, and Bimelech, and then uh, we see the story of uh, Hagar and Ishmael being sent away. But in the middle of this, that moment has finally come. This This promised child to Abraham and Sarah finally comes, and this is We read about this in Genesis 21, 1 through 7, and it tells us that now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the very time God had promised him, Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. I love how R.C. Sprouls talks about this. He goes, I, it doesn't tell us this in the Word, but he goes, I like to imagine that when his child was born, when Isaac was born, he went outside and he looked up at the sky and he started counting the stars. So excited about what has taken place. This promised child has finally come to him and Sarah. And then we get into Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis chapter 22, it's a familiar story. We've heard the story before. We've talked about it uh, in Sunday school and children's church. It's a very familiar passage, and it's really this defining moment for Abraham, this defining moment in the story of Abraham. We think about this story a lot when we think about Abraham, this, this challenge, this test that he's got to go through. And I think in this defining moment in the life of Abraham, we can find some truths that we need to reflect on and that we need to hold to this morning. And so we're going to start in the first three verses in Genesis chapter 22. And this is what the first three verses say. It says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey, and he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And so it tells us at the beginning, sometime later, now it doesn't give us a date, it doesn't give us a time, but it is kind of important when you read the rest of this story, this the rest of this event that takes place. Uh, when did this happen? How old was Isaac when this happens? Well, we know from scripture that Sarah was 90 when she had Isaac. It tells us this in Genesis 17, 17. In Genesis chapter 23, it tells us that Sarah was 127 when she died, which would put Isaac about the age of 37 years old. And so it's possible, it's likely at this time, and seeing uh, what we talk about a little bit later with Isaac and the questions he asks and the, the way he helps with carrying the stuff up this mountain for the sacrifice. He was probably a teenager, although it's possible that he was uh, a young man, the age 18 to 20. Matter of fact, historian Josephus believed that Isaac in this account is actually 25 years old and we'll talk a little bit more about this. We don't know for sure, and I don't think that's the important part of this, his age, but I do think the important part of this is the fact that God is going to come to him and test Abraham. He's gonna test him, and so how is he gonna test him? Well, first, before we talk about that, we need to realize that test was tests were a thing that God would use from time to time to check the hearts, the character, the uh, mindset of his people, Examples of this, Deuteronomy 8.2, when he says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Judges 2.22 says, I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. And so he is going to test Abraham. How is he going to test him? Well, it tells that he calls out to Abraham, and Abraham says, Here I am. And God tells him, I want you to take your son, your one and only son. I mean, he had Ishmael, but this was his uh, son that had been promised to him by God. This was the son that would be the one who would start this numerous amount of descendants. And he says, I want you to take your son, and I want you to sacrifice him in the region of Moriah, sacrifice him as a burnt offering on the mountain i will show you and then people like to look at this and say that doesn't make any sense god what are you doing why are you asking such a ridiculous thing think about this theologically this is the son who all these numerous descendants would come from and you're saying you want him to be sacrificed as an offering why would you test abraham in this way why would you do this But when you think about it, it actually makes sense. And this is what he's been waiting for. This is what he had been promised. This was the son that even though there were times when he tried to jump God's timing and do things on his own and that didn't work out too well, This was the son that had been promised to him. This is what he's been waiting for. And now God is saying, I want to know that now that you have what it is that you've been waiting for, now that you have gotten this thing that I have promised you, you've gotten this son that I have promised you, I want to see if you're still faithful. I want to see if you're still obedient. I want to see if you still trust and will be willing to do what I ask you to do. I think Alan Ross sums this up really well. He says, it's one thing to claim to trust God's word when waiting for something. It is quite another thing to trust and obey his word after it's received. Are you still going to trust me? Are you still going to obey? Are you still going to fear me? Are you still going to do what I ask you to do now that you've got what you've waited for, what you've got what you, now that you've gotten what you've longed for? Will you still do what I ask? Will you still be obedient? And so we see early the next morning, he gets up and loads his donkey. He takes with him two of his servants and, of course, Isaac. And he cut enough wood for the burnt offering. He sets out for the place. Now, from here where he's at, Beersheba, it would have been about 50 miles from Beersheba to Moriah. And the thing that's so interesting about this, where's the emotion? Where's the emotion in this text? We don't see any, we don't see Abraham questioning God. We don't see Abraham in probably what was a, a, the horrible pain in his stomach thinking about what I've got to do. I wonder if he slept well that night knowing the next day he's got to go and take his son to have him sacrificed. Where's the emotion? I mean, you look back at Genesis chapter 21 and it tells us that when he has to send Hagar and Ishmael away, he was distressed because Ishmael is his son. But where is it here? Now, oh, you see, I think there's probably emotion that we don't see. I'm sure that this was a difficult Thing For him to think about I believe he was probably feeling sick in his stomach But here's the thing To have an emotion is not a sign of disbelief And I think he believed The reason he was able to do this Is because he believed As we'll see here in just a bit That God was going to do something In the midst of this And it's okay sometimes to feel pain To feel sorrow To, to have emotions That doesn't mean that we are not Unbelieving and that, I think, is the case here. I think there's probably a motion that we don't see, but yet he is going, he's, he's going to believe that God is going to do something. And that leads us into verses 4 through 8, and it says, On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servant, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. And Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And so Abraham tells the servants, you stay here. Me and Isaac, we're going to go and we're going to worship and then we'll come back here. And so they take the stuff they need. Abraham is... Uh, carrying the, the fire, the knife, the things needed for this. Isaac is helping carry the wood, and Isaac asks a good question. Hey, uh, I think we're missing one of the key ingredients here. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answers and tells him, God's going to provide. God's going to provide this. And this is the part of the story a lot of times we read and we're wondering, God, Abraham, just are you really going to go through with this do you really trust Do you really believe that God is going to do something here is what are what are you thinking a lot of people have that view when they read this story you see Abraham is trusting God because he has reason to doesn't he I mean, if anybody has any reason whatsoever to trust God, I think it is Abraham. I mean, there's no possible way for God to spare the righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah while destroying the whole thing, right? Well, he spares Lot and Lot's daughters. I mean, there's no possible way for him to have a natural-born son with Sarah because they are just way too old to do this, to have a child on their own. It's just not possible, is it? And they have Isaac. Over and over and over again, God has been there, and Abraham has seen what God has done in his life. You see, Abraham does not have blind faith. Instead, he has a faith that has seen God move, and he has trusted what God would do next, even when he didn't see the whole picture. And, you know, he could have asked all the questions. He could have argued with God. He could have said, God, I'm not going to do this. Why are you asking me to do this? This is horrible. I want to turn around. I don't want to do this. Let's just go back. He could have asked for all these explanations from God, and yet he doesn't. He goes trusting that God is going to do something in the moment, that God is going to provide when he needs it. And he is going to have faith in this situation. It's like Warren Wiersbe puts it, faith does not demand explanations, faith rests on promises. And he had made promises to Abraham and Abraham believes that he is going to come through and he is going to fulfill those promises. It leads us to verses nine through 14. It says, when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. So Abraham called the place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And so here we are, we've come to that moment, the altar is built and he takes Isaac and he lays him on this altar, he bounds him to this altar. And I think what's interesting here is the fact that we see Isaac. We know that he is a young man, probably a teenager, possibly 18 to 20 years old, and we see him not fighting this. I mean, he's young, his father's old. It's possible that he could have argued with God. He could have tried to, if he wanted to, overpower Abraham. He could have been like, I don't think so. We're, this isn't going to happen. But he doesn't do any of that. We don't see any of that. He just sees, we see him bound to this altar. I think here is an example of a trust in his father. He's willing to trust his father that, man, whatever you're doing, I, I don't know what this is, but it appears that there's a lot of trust. And even in this moment, everything is ready to go, and he reaches out his hand, he takes, his, takes a knife to slay his son. Even in this moment, Abraham still believed that God was going to do something Matter of fact, the author of Hebrews tells us this in Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did not receive, or he did receive Isaac back from the dead." And so Hebrews leads us to believe that, you know, Abraham had the mindset that even if he was going to sacrifice his son, even if he was the one who would slay his son in this moment, God could bring him back from the dead. It's possible that God could bring him back from then, you know, real kind of, if you think about it, really, that's exactly what he has done. I mean, Isaac first was raised from a dead womb that they believed would never be able to have children and he will be now raised from the dead off of this altar. He was about to be sacrificed and now he will have life because he's not going to be sacrificed on this altar. So if you think about it, he really did receive Isaac back from the dead because what happens is God cries out, Abraham, Abraham, and he replies, here I am. He tells him, don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him now that I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your only son. This was the test. He wanted to see in this moment, are you really going to go through with what I asked you to do? Are you really going to be willing to give that thing that you have wanted most? Are you willing to give your son whom you love, your only son? Are you willing to give him up for me if I ask you to? Are you willing to trust and obey? And he has passed that test. We see that he fears God. It's that idea of reverence and respect for God. It's not like he it's not this idea of fear of, you know, he's terrified of him. It's this idea of he has this reverence and respect for God. And we see Abraham gave him the reverence he is due. He trusted him completely and was willing to do what God asked without any question. And he believed that God was going to take care of him. And that's exactly what happens. He provides it. We see Abraham look up in the thicket and he saw a ram. In verse 8, he said that the Lord would provide. And in verse 13, we see him provide. And it's a ram, not a lamb. But I bet really nobody made a big deal about that. Uh, hey, you said a lamb. It's, this is a, No, I don't think that was the case. Because they take that ram and they offer him as a sacrifice and the Lord, or Abraham called this place the Lord will provide and up to that point in time as Moses is writing this the name of this mountain was still the Lord will provide that was what it was still referred to as as Moses was writing Genesis and we see this phrase the Lord will provide and this phrase is Yahweh but we've seen it translated as Jehovah Jireh This idea that God will provide. God is our source of provision. God will provide for us. And then we go to verses 15 through 19. It says, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. And so Abraham is called again by the Lord and he tells him, I swear by myself, declares the Lord. That's when you know there is nobody else above God, and so God can't swear on somebody else. God has to swear on himself. That's how great and big and powerful God is. There is nobody else like him to swear on, and so he has to swear on himself. And what's interesting is this is actually the last time in Genesis that we see God speak to Abraham. Verses 16 through 18, these are the last time in the book of Genesis that God will speak to Abraham, and what a conversation that we're privy to in this final conversation between God and Abraham, because in these verses, he reaffirms this covenant that he's made with him, and he tells him again, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Genesis 15:5 was where we see this, look up in the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. But then he adds that they would be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Man, I've been to the beach a few times in my life, but I've never thought to sit there and count every grain of sand. Uh, I think it's pretty impossible because knowing us, we would probably be like, okay, I'm done. I've counted enough. I'm not going to count anymore. Uh, I've got other things I want to do. We're on the beach. We don't want to spend all day counting sand. That's a lot of sand, a lot of sand. And he says, it's going to be as numerous. Your offspring will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. This will be called back to later. Jacob will use this in Genesis 32, 12. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. And your descendants will take possession of the enemy cities. Joshua will later lead this charge. And then we see Abraham returns to his servants, just like he said he, they would. And they set off together for Beersheba, and that's where Abraham stays. And so, all of this stuff, a crazy story that takes place, it's a difficult story. It's, it's hard to fathom having to do this. But I think there are a couple of truths in this story of Abraham that we need to remember. And the first one is this we need to be obedient. We need to be obedient. You see, Abraham was obedient in such a difficult situation. He was obedient to what God had called him to do. And we need to be obedient to what the word calls us to do. We need to be obedient in following his commands. We need to take the example of Psalm 119 verse 60 when it says, I will hasten and not delay to obey your commands. We need to have that desire to be obedient, to want to do what God calls us to in his word. When, he, when the spirit guides and directs, we need to be obedience. Obedience is important for us. You know, how is obedience important? Well, I mean, obedience shows our love for God. When we're obedient to him, it shows that we love our, our God. I mean first John five two through three tells us this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. We are called to follow his commands, to obey his commands no matter the situation, because it shows our love for him. Well, obedience also shows our faithfulness to God. It shows our faithfulness to him. 1 John chapter 2, 3 through 6 tells us, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must also live as Jesus did. Jesus is our example. He is, uh, you know, an example of obedience, and we'll talk about that more here in just a few but we need to be obedient. It's part of our faith, showing our faithfulness to him. Well, Obedience is also important because when we obey and we do what God asks us to do, it can lead people to bringing him glory. First Peter 2.12 tells us, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Obedience is important. And here's the sad truth is that today, we often pick and choose when we want to be obedient. Don't we? I'll be obedient as long as I get something in return. Or I'll be obedient as long as it's something easy. If you're asking me to do something simple, I can do that. If you're asking me to do something that isn't going to be very difficult, I'm your guy. I'm, I'm there for it. Oh, I'll be obedient, but as long as you're not asking me to give something up or as long as you're not asking me to let something go, if, if you want me to be obedient, I, I can do that, but just please don't ask me to make any changes or please don't ask me to, to give up something. I, I don't want to do that oh, I'll be obedient, but as long as it doesn't offend. I don't want to make anybody mad. I don't want to make anybody angry. And so I'll be obedient, but just please don't, please don't send me somewhere that I'm going to hurt somebody. So I'm going to say something they, they disagree with. I don't, I don't want that. And we pick and choose when we're going to be obedient and when we're going to follow his commands and when we're going to listen to what he tells us to do. And Richard Sibes says it pretty boldly. He says, partial obedience is not obedience at all. To single out easy things that do not oppose our lust, which are not against our reputation, therein some will do more than they need. But our obedience must be universal to all God's commandments, and that because he commands it. Empty relationships are nothing. If we profess ourselves God's servants and do not honor him by our obedience, we take but an empty title. You cannot call yourself a servant of God. You cannot call yourself a believer if you are not willing to be obedient to what he calls you to. If you're not willing to be obedient in all situations, whether we, it's a easy or difficult, whether we have to give something up or we don't, we need to be obedient in all things. The second truth is this. We need to put our faith in God. We need to put our faith in God. Martin Luther says it so wonderfully. He says, Faith is a living and unshakable confidence, a belief in the grace of God so assured that a man would die a thousand deaths for its sake. Abraham was kind of like that, wasn't he? An unshakable confidence, a belief that God was going to do what he promised, that God was going to come through for him. He had faith that he was going to do and whatever he needed to do, and he didn't know exactly what was going to happen he didn't know exactly how the situation would unfold and yet he had faith that God was going to provide no matter how it turned out. He was going to come through even when he didn't see the whole picture. It sounds a lot like Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And the truth is this, we don't always know what's going to happen and which twists and turns are going to come up, but we know that our faith is not blind because not only do we have these stories and scriptures that show us what God can do in our lives, but we've also, if we think hard enough about it, we can look back and see all the things that God has done in our lives to put faith in him. All the times that God has come through for us when we needed him to. Our faith should not be blind. It should be based on what God has done. We can look at God and say, hey, I know what you've done. I put my faith in you because of what you've done and who you are. We've seen the reasons in our own life to put our faith in him. And that's why we're told in 2 Corinthians 5, 7 to live by faith and not by sight. That's why we're told in Ephesians six sixteen to take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. We are to put our faith in him. And here's the thing. If we want to live a righteous lifestyle, if we want to live a righteous life for him that we are called to live, it starts by having faith. Romans 1 17 tells us, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. We need to put our faith in God no matter what the circumstances, because we know that he is good. We know that he will provide, and that leads us to the next truth. God provides. God provides You see, God provided for Abraham what he needed in the moment that he needed it most. And God will provide what we need. Key word right there, need. Need. He will provide what we need. There's a difference between need and want. Sometimes those things are mutually exclusive. A lot of times they are not. The things that we want are, always not, are not always the things that we need, and God will provide the things that we need. But so often we believe that if God is not giving us what we want, then God's not really providing for us, is he? If God's not giving me what I want and my timing according to what I feel that I want, and God's not providing that, then God surely isn't providing at all, and that is simply not true. And whether we have just forgotten or whether we've just never realized it, we are blessed with provisions from God. And you might be thinking, how? You, don't know what, you know what I'm going through? You don't know what I'm going through? Tell me, explain to me how God provides. Well, let's look at the word. God provides the essentials that we need. Does he not? Matthew chapter 6, 25 through 26. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds in the air. Do they not sow or reap or store away in barns? And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? God provides the things that we need for the outer person, is how I would word that, the outer person, those essentials that we need. What else? What else? Well, God provides us with His Word. His Word. We have the Word of God. You can pick up each and every day and read His Word. You can pick up your phone and you can read God's Word in tons and tons and tons of different translations. You can read it at any point and any time of the day because it is with you everywhere you go if you have the U version. You you don't even have to have the U version. I can just scroll on Google and find the Word of God. It is everywhere for us. And is that not a wonderful thing? I mean, the word of God is important, is it not? 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuke, and correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And he blesses, he blesses us with those essentials we need. He blesses us with his word, but he also blesses not just the outward man, he also blesses the inward man. He blesses us spiritually. How does he bless us spiritually? Well, Jesus tells us about the peace that he gives. In John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Do not give to you, or I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. He is a God who gives us peace when we need it. He provides us with comfort. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. So not only is God a God of comfort who gives us comfort, but he gives us comfort and then therefore we take that comfort that he's given to us and we take it to somebody else who's been going through a similar situation and we give them comforts. God has provided us with comfort so that we can go and we can comfort others. He also gives us power, love, self-control. These things are is exactly what is quoted in 2 Timothy 1.7. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. And he provides us with Wisdom. James 1 5 if any of you lacks wisdom you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you and God provides for us each and every day, God provides for us, and so often we forget. Each and every day, the simple provisions that God gives to us, because we think that if God doesn't give us what we want, He's not actually providing. But yet, He is providing for us each and every day. And we can go through Scripture, and we can call out every single way that God provides. And there's a ton more than just these. He is a provider when we need it for what we need, according to His will, according to His time, according to His plan. He He gives us what we need, and of all the things he provides for us, all the things that he gives to us, nothing is bigger than the sacrifice that God has made for us. Look back at verse 12. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. You are willing to give up your one and only son for me. Now fast forward to the New Testament. John 1 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the Lamb. He is the Lamb of God, that sacrificial Lamb. He is the Son of God, God's one and only Son who has come to be the Lamb, to take away the sin of the world. Look at Philippians 1 6 through 8 who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Man, the Son of God, who was the one and only Son of God, come down to earth in human form, and he took on the nature of servant, the nature of servant, the Son of God, cleaning feet, helping those who needed it, being around the people that the religious leaders wouldn't want to be around. This is the Son of God, and yet he is a servant. He says this, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He was a servant. He came, and he was obedient to death, even death on a cross, the the death that was reserved for the worst of the worst. And he was willing to die on the cross. In Hebrews 7, 26 through 27, look at the writer, look what the writer of Hebrews says. Such a high priest truly meets our needs, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. We read the story of Abraham and Isaac and we see what happens and how God spares and and provides what they needed in just a moment. And here in the New Testament, we see that God provides exactly what we need, exactly when we needed it. He provides salvation through his son. He provides even when we forget. Even when we think that God is doing anything in our lives, even when we think that God doesn't care, we can read the New Testament, we can see truly how much God cares that he is willing to send his son. He provides for us. And it's not always what we want, but it's always what we need when we need it. And so I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up. And as the worship team is coming up, and he has, provided, he has provided his son for us, the perfect high priest who took on all the sins of the people, his, all the sins of the people that were not his own. He was without sin, and he took on all the sins for all people, and he sacrificed once for all when he offered himself. And this morning, maybe you're here and you've never accepted that, that gift. You've never given your life to him. There's no greater provision that God gives in giving us salvation, giving us his son. The one and only son is the one and only way to get into heaven. It's the only way, and it comes through his son. He gave us that sacrifice. And so if you're here this morning and you've never made that decision, you can. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've been living and you've been and you've not been putting your faith in him. Maybe you've stopped being obedient. Maybe life has gotten difficult. Things have gotten hard. There's been twists and there's been turns and your faith is starting to go. Maybe you're finding it harder and harder and harder to be obedient because no matter what you do, it just feels like it's nothing but pain and problems and trouble. And we need to be obedient in all circumstances, in all situations. We need to put our faith in him because we have not blind faith, but a faith that has seen what God has done for us. And so, if you're here this morning and that's you and you've just been struggling, you can pray right where you're at. You can lay those things at the feet of God. You can come and pray with me. I would love to pray with you. I know there's elders here who love to pray with you. Amen. God is a good, good God. And in this story, we see God provide. We see what he does for Abraham. And we see what Abraham does. He's obedient, he's faithful. And we see that God provides what we need when we need it. It's not always what we want. It's not always in our timing, but he always gives what we need when we need it. And so if you're here this morning and you have a decision to make or you just need to pray, please do so as we stand and we sing.